What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Nogueira. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I have to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of St. Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around. It was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny enough. I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, you know, the Welcome back to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon. Also, Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway, and we are continuing with the story of Stanley Tookie Williams. And where did we leave off on this, Bill? Uh, We had just reached the part where he had... um get a bad reaction to some drugs and he was arrested and placed in a medical facility for an overdose. And we really come now to the part of the story where his life changes uh, forever. It's, um, you know, it's 1979. It's uh, February 27th. And according to a person that the prosecution flipped, in other words, a person with a motive to downplay his actions so the prosecution will give him favor. In simpler terms, we're dealing with right now a person in informant with a motive to not only lie, but to save his own life. And this is where we're at right now. It's um, according to this informant, and I know you're not going to believe this, but his name is actually Coward. Okay? I'm not making this up. I saw so that, yeah. This guy... Yeah, this is, I mean, I don't know how I got guess like a name like that, but that's his last name. And um, so according to Coward, he, he says that he is with Williams, he, that Williams comes to his home on February the 27th, 1979, around 1030, and picks him up. Uh, he says that they go to James uh, Garrett's house, where Williams is staying. And according to this informant, that they pick up a sawed-off shotgun, and then um, they go and pick up a guy named Daryl. So we have these three guys in a car, and they, according to this guy, they they smoke cigarettes or lace the PCP, and they pick up another guy named Tony Sims. And um, during this, you know, session where they're uh, smoking this, the conversation comes up that they, that Tookie or Williams, he wants to find money. And that's the question he asked. Do you know where we can get some money? Um, so it's, I always have a problem with these guys that are, you know, part of the supposed crime and suddenly they find a conscience and they're, you know, downplaying what they did and they put the blame on somebody else completely. So um, I'm a little, I'm a skeptic when it comes to these guys. I've seen a number of people 
convicted of crimes because of the informant, and then years later turns out the informant basically just did whatever he had to do to save his own life. But this guy testified um, in, in a court, and he he says that they're in two separate cars, and they made two separate attempts to rob not only a liquor store, but also a restaurant. I don't know how difficult it is to walk into a place and put a gun in someone's face and take something, but according to him, there was two failed attempts. Yeah, and I next, saw one One of the attempts was they went to a stop-and-go market, and there was a clerk there, and this is according to Coward. Um, they went down the aisle, they approached the the clerk and asked for a cigarette. And this man whose name was Johnny Garcia apparently gave one of them a cigarette and they decided not to carry out the robbery because, uh, you know, he seems like a good guy. Uh, I don't know what to make of that, if it's true, but I would say whether it's a cigarette or whatever it might be, if you get approached by some scary guys, you know, sometimes it's not a bad strategy. No, and obviously if that's true, then it proved to be a good strategy, right? Yeah. Anyway, so then they they they're kind of cruising around, right? Yeah, and and they end up at a Seven Eleven store in Woody Boulevard, and um, and here's where, of course, Coward says that he, Daryl and Sims walk up to the counter, and their motive is to rob the cash register. And he says that Williams comes up behind the guy, pulls out a shotgun and orders the the store, the store clerk, whose name is Owens, to walk into the storage room. Um, so Coward then states that he hears a round being chambered. And when I first read this, I thought, okay, uh, for a round to be chambered in a shotgun, it has to be a pump shotgun. Because a cop shotgun, when you break it and you stick a, a shell in it or two shells for a horizontal shotgun, you don't hear anything. And to hear a shotgun, you know, chamber around, you have to have an extraordinary hearing aid. Okay, I don't know how that. What What works. is that? Does that mean that he hears that he hears him inserting the the round into the into the chamber? Is that what that means? Yeah, see, that's what's very, I have like a big question mark there because if you have a shotgun and you, what they call it, they break it in half, you stick two shells, you close it, there's no sound. Right. Now, if you were to put a shell, and I, again, if you're going to rob a place, you don't carry the shells in your pockets, then stick it in the, the, the shotgun and then chamber it. That's a lot of action if you're going in there to rob a place because a lot of liquor stores have guns. To the store clerk has been robbed before. They carry weapons just in case. So that, to me, seemed like this guy was really playing the part. But he says that he heard this chamber, this round chamber, and then a shot rings out, followed by two more shots. Um, and again, power to speak because he's testifying to this. He says that they robbed the place of some money, and then they leave. And when Sims supposedly asks Williams, why did you do it? His response was, I don't want to leave any witnesses. 
And that is pretty much, in a nutshell, what happened, according to Coward, on that evening. Then, two weeks later, um, the Brookhaven Motel in South Vermont Street, Los Angeles, was broken into, and three victims were found dead by Robert Yank. He is the uh, the son of two of the owners, and on March the 11th, 1979, he's awakened when he hears a woman scream, and then he hears what he believes are three or four shots. He lives in an apartment that's connected to the office of the hotel room. He gets out of bed. He goes to investigate and finds the door separating the motel's office from the family living area. He finds it open, and he enters. When he does, he finds his father, his mother, and his sister all deceased. Now, there were no witnesses to what happened at this motel, but according to testimony, none of these people were witnesses to the events of that night. You have a Samuel uh, Coleman, James Garrett, and his wife, Ethagret, and another jailhouse snitch named George Oglesby, who, by the way, was also facing a death penalty from a prosecution, and for his testimony, his uh, charges were reduced to a second-degree murder. That only carries 15 years to life. I say only because compared to a death sentence, that's the difference between night and day. But they testified basically that they heard conversations and they were part of conversations where Williams where Williams supposedly admitted to killing someone at a motel room. He never mentioned the people that they were Asian. He never mentioned anything like that. But this guy, George Oglesby, seems to be the person who gives the most damaging testimony because he goes in there and starts talking about that there was an escape plan, that he had people who were going to help uh, Williams escape from prison. And he just gave a lot of damning testimony about this supposed that, um, you know, attempt of escape and that they were going to. And here is the key piece of evidence that they used. The key piece of evidence that they used, and I say key because it really struck home, and it would strike home for a juror or myself, and that is that George Oglesby says that to escape, he was going to bring a sawed-off shotgun, that he had someone that would bring a sawed-off shotgun. So, of course, you're hearing this testimony. You're hearing that the victims of the Brookhaven Motel were gunned down by a shotgun. You hear of the guy in the 7-Eleven store being gunned down by a shotgun. So that, in my opinion, would tie it together. And why it's such a key piece of evidence is because this guy, George Oglesby, he knows this. He's a killer. He's a convict. He understands what makes people tick. He's a con artist. So he brings this to the table. So, of course, they argue what guy would want to be escaping from jail if he wasn't guilty. So, yeah, it's just, it seemed almost like everything was stacked against him. Most of the people that he knew turned on him. And, of course, you have these guys that are jailhouse informants or people that were his 
co-defendants turning on him, and according to them, he was the master plan guy. He was the one who did everything, and they just stood by. I find that a little hard to believe, especially when, if it's true that he is supposedly by this time known as, you know, the founder or the head of this organization that he put together, uh, usually people that are below him, they do the work because they want to impress the other guy. Now, I'm purely talking from just my opinion, but from being in prison for a long time and watching guys that are involved in different organizations, the guys that are in charge normally don't do any of the work. It's usually the other guys. So that struck a chord with me right away. And I don't have any evidence to prove this, but it just, I'm, I'm calling it as I see it. Yeah. Well, just anecdotally, um, if, if there are people that are maybe, uh, getting reduced sentences and, you know, getting certain, uh, things dropped or whatever it might be in exchange for their testimony, you also have to figure that the prosecutors, you know, they know that this guy's a major gang leader. I mean, is he on their bulletin board? Yeah. So, of course, they want him, and numerous times prior to this, they arrest him. Now the charges stick. They had an axe to grind. And so, I mean, things just go from bad to worse. Of course, they find him guilty on all charges. A jury then sends him to death. And they send him to death row, where some really interesting things happen. You know, and, and these are all factual. What I'm talking about is trial and the crimes that were committed and who testified, I'm giving my opinion. But here are the facts regarding who he was as a man, undisputed or un... You, you can't argue since we know this happened. He arrives on death row, and for the most part, in the 1970s, when someone arrives on death row, this is the end of the line. There's not a whole lot of things you can do to better yourself or do anything. And obviously, uh, because of who he was, they stuck him in the hole which is the Adjustment Center, and we've talked briefly about that, um, and it being the worst place in the world. In the 1970s and 80s, San Quentin was the most notorious prison in the nation. And the Adjustment Center, which was the whole, because they supposedly adjust you to whatever means necessary, was the worst and most violent place that you can imagine. I spent a year there, and I can tell you, in the 1980s, that was a, a chamber of horrors. In the hole. So, so is that, that's not solitary confinement? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's worse than solitary confinement. You are in a cell by yourself. There is these cells called the quiet cells where they throw you in there when you first get there and they're rat infested. They are dirty. It's just a horrible place to live. And, William Spence, he was there for, till 1994. So that was not so, for uh, disciplinary reasons? They just put him there as soon as he got there? Yeah, like, like me when I got here, when you got to San Quentin and you were on death row, you always went to the adjustment center to be evaluated. Depending on what took place in your prior life when you were a free person, while you were in jail, they stack those things against you, and depending on that, 
spend time in the adjustment center. I spent nearly a year there. Other people spend five years, 10 years, 15 years. There's guys that have been there for 30 years and more until a few years ago, a lawsuit was filed that showed that putting people in solitary confinement for 30, 40 years is worse than any death penalty or anything else. And they ruled it to be cruel and unusual. And they let these guys out. Some of these guys were in there for 40 years. It, it, it's just insane if the public or the listeners can actually imagine living in those kind of conditions for that amount of time. Right. Yeah, it's a psychological torture. You do get to go outside for, what, an hour at some point? But you're, you're just in there. Yeah, no, you get to go outside. But as I said, the worst of the worst criminals are there. But it's interesting because when he comes out in 1994, and this is a lot about who the man was. And as I said, I was on the same yard with him. I spent almost nearly a decade on the same yard with him. So he gets out in 1994. By 1996, he publishes the first of nine books with an anti-gang message for children. This is a guy who was thrown on death row. This is a guy who spent years locked away in the hole. And basically the first thing he does, because you know the process of publishing a book, it takes, it, you know, they didn't have Amazon and self-publishing back then. You had to get a publisher doing it. And that usually happens. That takes quite a bit of time. So he also carries this message even further. And he does it right away. So he's almost proving with his actions, not with his words, of what he feels he owes society or what he wants to do to kind of repair some of the stuff that he believes may he may have contributed to. And so the following year, he, he, he puts out an apology uh, for, his gang, for his role in gangs and, uh, and their creations. And, he, and I quote, I am no longer the problem. Thanks to the Almighty, I am no longer sleepwalking through life. He goes even further and he creates a radio campaign where he calls elementary schools, he calls high schools, he talks to kids about gang violence, about not joining gangs. And this is very significant because if you look at the this whole situation, and I'm going to get to a part that it's either going to piss people off or it's going to really drive my nail home. He was such an authoritative figure and voice to kids because he was a guy who talked to them from the worst place and say, hey, look, this is what happens to you if you do these things that I have gone through. That's a powerful message. Most guys in prison, 99.999% of them don't care. They're worried about going to the store. They're worried about making money, worried about getting visits. It was the opposite with this guy. He was committed fully to rehabilitating his image, but not just for himself, but for his community. As I mentioned, his first reasons for creating or getting together and getting into a supposed gang was to create an African-American protection against police violence. You know, the watch riot was going on then. There was violence. So, you know, this is, this is substantial. It's, it's a lot. He also demonstrates his commitment and sincerity by going to gangs through the phone, like I'm using right now. He would call these places where gangs gather. 
he would tell them, listen, you can't do this. You have to stop. This is not going to solve any problems. You're only killing our own people. And that seemed to be a very powerful thing. From what I understand, a number of people left gangs because of this. A number of kids that were at the verge of entering gangs resigned from them. They didn't want to get into them. So there's a lot to be said for what he contributed from behind these walls. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I found something really interesting that uh, the Los Angeles Police Department and uh, kind of trying to discredit what he was doing issued a statement basically that he had no, there was no evidence that he had any leadership at this point, that he, he was irrelevant to these gangs, which is kind of ironic because, you know, the, the whole reason I think for um, the rhetoric in prosecuting him and pushing for his execution was that he was this big gang leader. So uh, I don't really see how that can go both ways. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because that's part of the, one of the things I was going to end this segment with. Which the LAPD, that they have their pul- their finger on the pulse of all these things going on in Los Angeles, their position is he has no influence. He doesn't know anything that's going on. He's been gone so long, nobody cares. <laughs> However, the, before his execution, the, there was a spokesperson at the prison at the time. He was an Ar- African-American. In his position, and this has never been done before because usually the position of the, the California Department of Corrections or San Quentin is they have no comment about individual people. They may say the person is here incarcerated, he is serving uh, his time, he has an appeal going, and they basically leave it neutral because their job is only to hold the person. The Attorney General's office, the LAPD, or whoever the law enforcement agency are, they're the ones that are responsible for these type of statements that you just talked about and to prosecute the the case through an appeal. But here we have this spokesperson at San Quentin, and because of an interview that Williams did with 60 Minutes, he gets on there and he starts to downplay everything he says by making statements regarding, well, you know, we don't, we don't think he's sincere. You know, he's not sincere because he won't debrief. He won't do all this stuff. And so he's putting, putting a personal belief in this stuff. What that guy didn't understand, and I do, and I'm going to share it with the audience, is that if you are a, according to sources, a, the head of the, I don't know, call it whatever you want, um, and you debrief, you lose all credibility with anybody you're trying to... You have 60 seconds remaining. ...for you to help. But LAPD made a statement. He has no um, standing in these gangs. He's not a gang leader anymore. He's been in prison a long time. He doesn't have an influence. So if this is true, then for a spokesperson to come on and say, well, he won't debrief, he won't do this, he's not actually committed to what he says he's doing, it's absurd. Because it's, it's true. After decades, 25 years, a quarter of a century in prison, it, it makes no sense for a spokesperson to say that here when it's absolutely not true. 
he if he was a a was actively in a prison gang or something like that, yeah, there is a process of debriefing because it shows your um, that you're willing to walk away from that stuff, and they basically want you to tell everybody. Well, this guy has been in prison for 25 years. He knows nothing of what's going on in the streets, nothing that's relevant. And for a spokesperson to say, well, he won't debrief, he won't do this, and that proves he's not committed to what he's saying or he's not being sincere, it's completely ludicrous. The, the fact that when prison heads or the gang, imprisoning gangs, when guys get out of it, they've been out for a few, a few weeks and they debrief, they have something relevant to contribute. Basically, the prison wants to snitch on somebody. Williams had nothing to tell about anything because he'd been gone so long. So for the prison, the prison to say that was just, in my position or, or opinion, just to break the guy down because obviously what he was doing was making a difference. You don't have to be a guy doing things for people to look at. So to make a difference, his voice, his message of nonviolence, his message of hey, go to school, change your life, don't do it, or if you're not involved, don't get involved, did reach a number of people. And I'll say this because, look, he wrote another book called, um, and I have to remember the name of the book, but Life in Prison. It's a nonfiction book about the horrors of jail. He follows that up by writing a book, a memoir, Blue Rage, Black Redemption, which again, he talks about his life transformation into the man that he ultimately became, you know, as an author, an advocate against violence. These are the responsibilities that he took on his own shoulders. He could have just sat back and said, look, I'm going to eat well, I'm going to sit back, I'm going to lift weights, I'm going to do nothing. That's not what he did. He didn't do it once. He kept doing it. And like I said, I had a front seat to watch him and what he was doing. I've mentioned this in previous episodes. You can tell a lot about a man, about what he says and what he does by watching him. You know, if you live down the street from somebody, you don't know what he does in his house alone. In prison, you can't hide anything because you know what people are doing. He stayed consistent to what his beliefs were. And, of course, then he gets the uh, attention of some Hollywood stars like Jamie Foxx. They produced a movie about him um you know you have then when this movie comes out some of the people understanding who he was because remember he's been gone for a very long time people knew about him because of his message as i said he had a campaign on the radio he did a lot of things and then of course the swiss parliament then nominate him for a nobel peace prize now i know it sounds like oh well no big deal but let's really examine what that really means when you're nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, that's a big deal. You have to show a commitment to a particular set of values. And it's examined by a committee. It's not like one or two guys. It's a committee of people. And here's, here's the, the glitch for everybody. It wasn't done once. It was done twice. He was nominated a second time by Professor Philip Gaspar. And again, for a Nobel Peace Prize. That's, that's, that's a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. Because as I said, he, he stayed committed to his values. 
And I think that says a lot about him. What do you think? Well, I, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people point out and criticize him for is that he is doing all these positive things, but he also is not admitting uh, guilt in his crimes. And I'm not sure how many pe- uh, of the people advocating for him believed him to be innocent or not, but I, I don't think that that's a popular opinion. So I, I guess I'd throw that back at you. Well, yeah, it's very interesting you say that because, okay, so, you know, the, the parole boards, when you go to parole board, if you're in there for, for taking a life or robbing somebody in a long time, you have to basically go in there and admit that you did do those facts. Now, if you're guilty, then I believe the person should say, hey, look, I did these things. I apologize. I, I know the, the great pain I've caused, et cetera, et cetera. It's part of the rehabilitative process to accept responsibility. But let me pose this to you. But if you're an innocent man, and, and I'm not saying that he was or he is, but he maintained he was innocent, that those people lied about him. So let's just say, for argument's sake, that he was innocent. Why then, and he did say he was, so why then would he admit to doing something that he's been advocating? I didn't do it. Does yeah. that make any sense to you? I mean, I you would admit to doing something you didn't do? Yeah. I would have a hard time. Uh, doing that, you know, humbling myself in that way. Uh, and, you know, a lot of this, like, I'm sure he did some things, you know, I obviously he wouldn't claim that he was a perfect guy that never broke the law. Um, but when you look at the trial, you know, there are some problems, uh, especially when you look at the, uh, the forensic evidence with the shotgun. So they find these shells in the hotel and they say that the markings on the shells are the same as the markings uh, from the Seven Eleven, and that only his gun can produce these markings. And we're finding more and more that this is quackery. If you just think about it, not being an expert, um, how many guns can make a unique mark on a shell? Uh, we're finding that there's a few um, of these experts out there in a given field that get paid to testify all day uh, by prosecutors and that they'll say anything that can lead to an, a conviction. And I'm not saying that, that, that that science is completely bogus. All I'm saying is think about a hundred guns and think about the marks that they make when they fire a bullet and just, you have the same eyes as this expert, right? And you, you want to look in a magnifying glass and, a, and tell me what you think it's a stretch and we're finding that uh, a lot of times, you know, this is leading to wrongful convictions. Yeah. And the bullets, this is not, so, so the audience understands, this is not ballistics because it was not a, a round that was shot from a, a rifle or from a gun where you have the markings of the groove and all these, this was a shotgun shell. A shotgun shell, when it, when it shoots, it's a bunch of BBs that come up. So you can't, uh, you know, there's no ballistics. You know, the, the, they take the bullet out of the, it doesn't work that way. They took the shells, like you mentioned, they said, well, when it, they took it out of the chamber, it made a certain marking. That's really, really, that's stretching it. So it's dubious. That's the evidence they had, and of course, yeah, and of course they had just the witnesses who had a motive to, 
you know, these guys, the guys he was with were criminals. They had a motive. One of them, a couple of them were facing serious charges. And so that's, so again, the, the point was that their position was he's not admitting to this, so he's not really being sincere. But again, if he was, if he, if he believes he was innocent and he didn't do these crimes, why would he admit to that? I mean, I wouldn't admit to something that I didn't do. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, if I was on a parole board, I would have to say to myself, okay, the odds are that he might be lying, but maybe he didn't do it because the odds are 100% that we've denied parole to someone that said they were innocent who was innocent because there are innocent people in there. You know, it's a, uh, and then, you know, even, I think even more so because we're just seeing that DNA is, is exonerating people. So, so to act like, to to act like you get it right a hundred percent of the time, I I would even say, all right, let him believe that he's innocent. Um, But what we're talking about is the rehabilitation process, you know, because to to deny that that's ever happened, uh, that you're infallible, it doesn't, it it doesn't ring true to me. I I don't think that's what you should be doing in that position. As I said, there also are four victims here. And we should not uh, forget them because obviously they lost their lives, their families uh, experienced a great deal of pain and probably still do to this date. Um, but what we're talking about here is this particular man and you know the process he went to before they executed him. So we don't want anybody to think that we're overlooking the victims at all. We are not. And we are we are dissecting the process that he went through and we're kind of weighing back and forth. And, you know, we'd like to hear from audience members regarding this issue because, you know, there's also the argument that are we better off with him being executed or alive? Because if obviously his life had value, he was very productive. He was not, not for himself, but the community. He was a reminder. Even if he never got out, he's a reminder to people of what can happen for, you know, hanging on the wrong person, getting involved in things, uh, you know, being a leader. I mean, all these things are very relevant. Once he was executed, all of this stopped. Because he wasn't able to speak to people. He didn't change any more lives. So value is something, you know, we, we've talked about, uh, what, 11 guys now before him. And only one guy Prior to this, I believe that was Tommy Thompson, maintained his innocence, and there was reason to believe he was innocent. The rest of these guys all admitted they did it. You know, or the, the evidence was so freaking overwhelming in that there's nothing you can do about it. They found, you know, like Serapong, his hands were all cut. They found a knife in his house. They had the jewelry with them. You know, he used the credit card. You know, we have these guys that are all completely guilty. This guy says, hey, it wasn't me. Yeah, and I find this, well, I find it particularly interesting because he was like, you know, one of the most positive voices on this subject. And and while he was doing that, you can speak to this and, and elaborate for me, but there were a lot of officials, people in politics, um, 
who were apolitical on this issue, uh, who never had anything to say about it, uh, about the death penalty. And suddenly, and, and I'd like to point out that we did have Manuel Babbitt, who was uh, executed, who was an African-American. And I don't want to get in trouble with the way I say this, but, you know, Stanley was a, was a crip. I would say culturally he was a different type of African-American. And suddenly we have people coming out left and right that never had anything to say about it. And they're advocating for, for his death. Do you remember that? Yeah, there was both sides. I mean, he, he stirred up a lot of passions behind for the death penalty and against the death penalty and in the African community. But you're right. A lot of politicians stepped up because it was the right thing for their careers. And I'll be back. Okay, as I was saying, you know, some of these politicians are very convenient for their election to take a position um, for the death penalty and for advocating his particular execution. Um, you know, look, we know that every time, at least in the early, in the 90s and 2000s, or even earlier than that, throughout history, what is the first thing a, you know, a politician says when it comes to being like, I'm going to be hard on crime. I'm going to, you know, seek the death penalty. I'm going to, these are those, those, those key words, if you, if you will, about crime that really gets people, um, you know, charged up on both sides. So of course, I mean, you know, here comes the election. Their position is, look, I, I really, I advocate for this guy's death, and I am the one. That, so they used it. You know, I, it's just, it is what it is when it comes to that. Um, I think that why this particular case brings up so many emotions on both sides is because it's really hard to point out to this guy, point out in this guy's actions that he was this horrible person they made him out to be because of everything did while he was in prison. Um, you don't just wake up one day and just dedicate your life to rehabilitation and, and anti-gang voices and you know, an author and writing about it. And this was his whole message. It wasn't just one short book. It was you know, 11 books that he wrote about this, anti-gang for children and his books, as well as everything else he did. I think, if nothing else, it, it, it does bring the attention to that phrase that the death penalty or the notion that the death penalty is for the worst of the worst men. And we've talked about them. William Bonney killed 37 children, murdered and raped them. What was his response when they asked him, what would you be doing if you were out? His response, I'd be killing. It got easier every time I did it and I loved it. These are the words of a monster. This is the kind of guy that the death penalty was made for. Now, with Williams, if he was innocent, then obviously that is not the right thing, but also then there's value. What was his value as a human and what he did after this? And again, we're not advocating that we should forget about the victims, but his position was that he didn't do it. Um, so yeah, that's it's, it's an interesting situation, one that people are going to debate for probably decades, especially when... Um, you know, a prominent, uh, so many prominent African-Americans came to his defense. Uh, other country leaders came to his defense. And he had a large following because of his actions as a advocate against violence. Yeah, and I think he might be one of the few 
prisoners in general, but people that have been executed. Cause I remember reading articles about the guy. Um, you know, I didn't even live in California at the time. I think there were people that knew him as like this author, uh, advocate more so than a criminal, someone that was in prison, you know, like, I think he kind of transcended that, uh, especially toward the end. Yeah, his voice was large. Absolutely. And that doesn't happen overnight. You have to really dedicate yourself to it. And I said, I knew him. I spent years right next to him working out. And I walked, I, you know, I spoke to him all the time in the yard. He was good to this. He never once told me or made some kind of comment that I would even consider. Because believe me, if he had, I would have said something right now. I said, this is, this is bullshit. But his, his commitment was always to what he believed in, which was anti-gangs. And, and he felt the responsibility that, you know, being a, a, a one of the founding members or a, a leader in that particular group, he, it weighed on him. You know, he, he wanted to change what he did in terms of just the, the formation of this, these groups. But he never changed that. I mean, he never changed his opinion or his that dialogue, which was against all this violence. And I was there all the time with him. He talked about this stuff and he talked to a lot of people in the yard and numerous occasions, he stopped things from happening because of his voice. And I, I think that's, it shows who is about, he didn't have to, I mean, what, what did he gain by, you know, stopping two idiots from, you know, bashing their heads together? Nothing. He gained nothing, but he did it because he believed in that state of mind. He believed in that type of change. Um, education was a big thing for him as well. So yeah, all in all, an interesting person. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. And as I said, one that people will be speaking about for a number of decades because of his weight and his, um, his deeds while incarcerated. Yeah. And one of his last, I think it was actually his last statement so he didn't offer any last words, um, you know, but he was speaking about the whole process and he said, it doesn't matter. You know, this isn't predicated on race or color or social stratum or one's religious background. Um, you know, he said, whether you choose to believe that I've redeemed myself or not, I worry not because I know and God knows, and you can believe that all the use that I continue to help, that they know too. So with that, I'm grateful. I say to you and everyone else, God bless. So, take care. Um, I was curious when you spoke to him, you know, fairly regularly, that sounds like, uh, and obviously he was an older man at this point, but did he still retain that kind of street edge attitude or had he kind of, uh, been rehabilitated to the, to a point of, you didn't even get that from him as much. Well, look, when you're on a death row yard, you're going to maintain that edge. You don't lose that. Um, and, and maybe somebody that wasn't in prison would notice that type of thing. I'm fairly almost blind to it, but I can tell you that he was very soft-spoken, very educated. He spoke eloquently. Uh, he did not use cuss words, but as far as his stature of the man that he was, the respect that he, that people gave him, I think was always there. I don't think that respect had to do with, you know, him, 
you know, committing violence. I think a lot of the respect people had for him was because of his, he did his thing, which was, as we've mentioned, the rehabilitation, the anti-gang thing, and people understood and respected that, you know, man, if this guy would have spoke to me when I was a kid, I may have changed my life. So I think that his, um, the respect people had for him um, were because he was not faking. See, that's big in prison. If, if I've said this before, you, you can't fake being a tough guy in prison. You can't fake who you are in prison because everybody sees everything about you. Because he was honest and committed to what he was doing, people respected that. If he, if he had been faking it and doing what these law enforcement people were saying he was doing, nobody would, uh, would take him seriously. Yeah. So, I, I, yeah. So that, that's what my, my answer to that question is. He seemed to be very sincere. He was sincere. And everybody here are pretty good judges of character. They can smell a lie. And um, what do they say? You can't bullshit a bullshitter. The best bullshitters in the world are in prison. And he was straight at all times when it came to his uh, viewpoints. And he held strongly to them. Yeah, and he had the respect of the guards because uh, as it comes time, he's exhausted his appeals. December 13th, 2005, nearly his 52nd uh, birthday. And they are in the uh, in the chamber and the, they're trying to find a vein on his arm to insert the needle and they can't find it. You know, I guess sometimes it's hard to find the vein and so it's really uncomfortable for him and everyone else and he was comforted by a female guard uh, at that time, uh, just kind of whispering to him, and a second guard who uh, uh, was actually made physical contact with him. And but after that process, he was executed. Um, so this was probably the highest profile, the highest profile uh, execution that that you had. So it must have been a pretty crazy scene at, at San Quentin on on December thirteenth. Absolutely. There was um, a lot of media coverage, a lot of proponents against the death penalty, some for the death penalty. Um, we were on lockdown because of uh, the, the prison felt. We were on lockdown because the prison felt that something might happen. But his, I mean, if, as I said, if he was about violence, I'm sure that people that supported him would have become violent. But nothing like that happened. He, um, you know, his position was, hey, look, the last thing I want you guys to do or anybody to do is to seek revenge for me or anything. I, you know, this is the process I'm going through. And as I said, when he was in his chamber, he was very eloquent. He, he wasn't, you know, yelling and screaming or calling people names. Or, he was always consistent to how he was. But the prison, of course, locked us down. They had uh, numerous interviews with people of what they felt was going to happen or they interviewed people and asked them, do you feel something's going to happen? And for a, a few days, there was a lot of media behind it. There was a lot of uh, reporters contacting people on the road, wanting to speak to us about how we felt about it. So yeah, it was, there was a lot of stuff going on there. It was the most high profile um, execution there was. And um, it was the second to the last one that we had in the modern era at San Quentin prison. 
Yeah, so next week we'll get to the last one. And uh, and then we'll just continue talking about notorious criminals and uh, and murderers and everyone that, that's been on death row in San Quentin uh, since. And uh, yeah, this was, I don't know. To me, this seems like whether you're a Democrat or Republican, kind of the time that you might actually say, why don't we grant this guy clemency? What are we gaining from killing this guy exactly except to prove that we can? I don't know. It, it, it's kind of gross to me. Yeah, with this, with this particular individual, with, uh, with Williams, um, I think that um, it was a loss to the world that he was uh, executed because, you know, as a dead person, he cannot help anybody. He can't reach out to people and possibly help somebody before they themselves get involved in this type of situation. So, yeah, a uh, lot to think about. And, um, you know, this is the episode about uh, Stan Tookie Williams. Uh, I'm William Nagara. And I'm Matt Ralston. And this has been... And these are the Death Row Diaries. Yes, these are the oh, Death Row okay. Diaries. That's oh, all right. We'll get it right one of these days. And... <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Welcome back to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. By the way, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries and Patreon. Also, Death Row Diaries, where you can get exclusive content and merchandise. Anyway.